Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome. I am so pleased you're joining me today. Thank you. This is the third part of a series I'm doing on financial statements. In the last two episodes, I talked about completing the expenses portion and then the income portion of your financial statement. I want to say how much I appreciate all the feedback I have received from my listeners about the series. I'm so glad to hear the tips are helpful to someone out there. In the first episode of the series, which dropped on November 20th, I gave an overview of the two financial statement forms available for completion in Ontario. Which of the forms you will be completing will depend on whether you were married or common law before the separation, and also on the issues being considered. In fact, now that I think about it, I touch on this issue of the forms at the beginning of both the first and second episodes of the series. So if you are interested in a refresher on this point, I invite you to listen to those. Both married and common law spouses will be expected to complete the income and expenses portions of their financial statements. But when it comes to their assets and liabilities, in other words, what they own and what they owe, their entries and their extent will be quite different in a number of important aspects. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know that I'm very keen on using accessible language rather than legal lingo. And I also try to explain legal concepts step by step. So let me do that now, because some of this terminology and ideas can be a little complicated. In Ontario, the property rights of a spouse on separation differ considerably depending on whether the parties were married or common law. And for the purposes of this episode, I will use the word spouse to refer to both people who are married to each other and who were not. 
I am going to give you a brief overview of how Ontario law approaches property and debts at separation in these two situations. But you should not take what I say here as legal advice. From my perspective, every case is different, and I mean that. For a lawyer to actually give you legal advice, he or she would have to know the specifics of your case and be in a position to enter into a dialogue with you, which would likely include questions and answers, to be able to fully know and then properly assess the relevant facts and to give you advice by applying the law to those facts. I am not in a position to do any of that, but I can give you some information and that is what I'm going to do today, along with some tips based on my experience. More after a short break. Ontario, married spouses who separate equalize their net family property. In common parlance, this is referred to as property division, and I often hear the public refer to this as, quote, splitting everything in half, close quote, to which I generally respond, it's kind of like that, but not really. Let me explain. Equalization is initially a series of calculations, and then a process by which married but separated spouses share the increase in the value of their net worths between the date of marriage and the date of separation. If by now your head is spinning a little bit, it should be because the concepts here are not intuitive to many people. But this concept of equalization does start making sense fairly quickly once you understand the sub-components of what I just said. The key is that to begin with, spouses are expected to share the value of their assets and liabilities. So when the calculations are initially made, we do not actually divide things in half with each retaining their own one half after the separation. We determine how much value one spouse has to pay to the other, if any, so that they end up with the same net worth at separation. Equalization is based on a formula which is provided to us in Ontario's Family Law Act. The relevant sections of that legislation, in other words, written law, provide us with steps we are to use to complete the calculation. Each married but separated spouse has a net family property, which is essentially their net worth at separation based on the application of this formula. Net family property is different than net worth because when we calculate net worth, we generally deduct debts from assets and figure out the net amount. 
the equalization formula, which has built into it the expectation that each spouse calculate their net family property, is more complex, with many more steps than the calculation of net worth. I am not going to take you through the formula here because that is not the point of this episode. And it's important that you actually get legal advice on this point. But I wanted to set up some groundwork for you to understand that these multiple steps required to determine your net family property also mean that your entries in the assets and debts portion of your financial statement will be correspondingly more complex if you are married and separated. And I'm stressing the last point again. For the purposes of the equalization formula, it's not just what a spouse owns and owes at the separation date that is relevant. Those same considerations also come into play for the date of marriage. Remember what I said, that equalization between married but separated spouses amounts to their sharing the increase in their net worth, if any, between the date of marriage and the date of separation. That is why both dates are relevant. In order to establish whether there is such an increase, we need to know what each spouse owned and owed at the date of marriage and the same for the date of separation. There are other important components of the formula having to do with gifts and inheritances, for example, and also various exceptions to general rules. Yes, you guessed it, the Family Law Act has a number of such exceptions and they are very important. I expect that in your initial meetings with your lawyer, he or she went with you through the net family property calculation. So that should help you understand why the various columns in this part of the financial statement form are important and how they assist in the calculation, yes, of your net family property. So what is the takeaway from what I have said so far? It is that the assets and liabilities portion of the financial statement, which you will be completing if you were married and are now separated, is much more complex and will likely require much more work and legwork from you than if you were common law. We sometimes refer to the form you will be completing as the long-form financial statement. Next, I talk about representing assets and liabilities for common law spouses. short-form financial statement which separated common law spouses complete is less complicated when it comes to representing what they own and what they owe. 
They show those numbers, generally speaking, only for the date on which they swear their financial statement. Those entries provide a snapshot of their financial situation at that time in combination with what they show for their income and their expenses. The reason for this relative simplicity is, again, that married separated spouses have different property division rights than common law separated spouses. The formula I talked about before our last break, the one we get from the Family Law Act, the equalization formula, does not apply to common law spouses. So for the purposes of your financial statement, if you were common law and you are now separated, you are not including information, for example, about what you had and what you owed at the date of marriage. That's right, you weren't married. And again, that equalization formula does not apply to you. At this point, you may be asking yourself, do I have any rights to property division? How do we deal with our debts? The answer is not straightforward, as is often the case in family law. Sometimes lawyers don't answer a question with a straightforward three-line answer because the actual answer requires five paragraphs. And of course, this generates some of the jokes about lawyers, which include the one about a lawyer's answer always beginning with, it depends. Well, it really does. In this instance, whether a spouse at the end of a common law relationship will be entitled to any share of the other spouse's property, for example, will depend on a whole host of factors, including how long they were together, what roles they adopted during the relationship, whether they have children, whether they intermingled their finances, and frankly, to what extent they behaved and were seen by the outside world as if they were a married couple. The assessment of these factors and their application to a particular case is not always straightforward. Important legal concepts like trusts and a joint family venture, and funky-sounding terms like quantum merit come into play. So if you were in a long-term common-law relationship, I urge you to consult a lawyer as to what your rights may be as a result. But the bottom line for the purposes of this episode is that your entries for the value of your assets and debts in the relevant portion of your financial statement will be less complex than those for a married separated spouse. Remember the concept of limited scope legal services, and I talk about these on a regular basis. You have the ability to obtain legal advice and legal assistance, not just on the basis of a full-time retainer, which not everyone can afford. You can get focused advice on specific issues. And in the show notes, I have included the website for Ontario's Family Law Limited Services Project. Take a look. It's full of useful information, 
including a roster of lawyers who provide these services in Ontario. Let's talk about your actual entries. Uh, But no, let me backtrack a bit to start with some fundamentals. Because you should be completing this task thoroughly and with a fair bit of detail, you need to figure out how much time it will take you to do just that. So the first thing I suggest to do is take a careful look at the actual form you will be completing. Sit yourself down with your favorite drink with as little distraction as possible. And first skim the parts relating to assets and debts. And then spend a few more minutes thinking about what it will take for you to complete them properly. Most humans underestimate the amount of time it will take them to complete a task. And there are some funny quips about this out there. You should give yourself enough time. But on the other hand, keep in mind Parkinson's law, which is that work expands based on the amount of time you give yourself to complete it. So if you give yourself a week to do a two-hour job, there is a risk that, based on the psychology of human beings, you will make the project more complex than it really is to fill that week-long space. So the key is balance. Give yourself a realistic time estimate. My rule in life is to multiply my initial estimate by two, and some of the time even that isn't enough. Most people own stuff and owe money. I mean, there are some people who don't have any debt, and if that is the case, they are likely to also have more assets. So if you have been married for some time, the likelihood that completing this portion of your financial statement will be a quick task is unlikely. The same comments go for common law spouses. Even if you are focusing on just a single date to provide a snapshot in time of your assets and debts, you should still be approaching the task with seriousness and commitment. So overall, the second takeaway today is plan and gently overestimate the amount of time the task will take you. In past episodes, I have spoken about the importance of filling out financial statements properly and thoroughly. There are many reasons for this, which I won't repeat in this episode, but here is one which may be of interest to you. In fact, two. First, the more information you provide up front the less need there will be for multiple letters from the other lawyer asking you to provide this and that. They are likely entitled to the information they're asking for, so why not provide it in the first place and avoid those costly letters back and forth? Of course, your lawyer will guide you on this point. And second... You want to build credibility, believability in the eyes of both the other side and the court if you are going to end up there. The more diligent you are about filling out your financial statement, the more information you provide up front, the more you will be signaling to that audience that you're believable, open, transparent, 
and as we say in our everyday lives, that you have nothing to hide. When I say fill it out properly and diligently, what do I mean by that? Let's use some practical examples. When you go to the debts page, and if you have a mortgage, it's not enough in my view to simply describe this debt as a quote mortgage, close quote, and then provide an estimate of $250,000. Those entries actually provide the reader with very little information and they invite many questions. Who is the mortgage with? Is it only your mortgage or is the other spouse jointly responsible for it with you? What asset does this mortgage relate to? Is it the matrimonial home? Is it a cottage? Who is this mortgage with? Is it a bank? Is it a private lender? What is the account number? It would be an incredible coincidence if on the day you are describing this mortgage in your financial statement, the balance was such a lovely round number of $250,000. That sounds like an estimate, and that is not sufficient. You need to be exact, and this goes for both married separated spouses and common law separated spouses. Let me give you another example. You are not married and you and your common law spouse own a residence together. You were living in this residence at the time of separation and you still do until what is to happen to it is sorted out. To clarify, you are both on title. There is a mortgage in joint names. It is not enough to simply list this asset as, quote, home, close quote, and in the column which calls for the value to provide an estimate without any explanation. You need to provide the address. You need to show how title is held. When you provide the value, tell the reader how you arrived at it. If it's only an estimate, then you may want to provide further information on how you came to that estimate. Was it perhaps based on a letter of opinion you got from a local real estate agent? Are you showing the value of the property based on how the bank assessed it when you recently remortgaged? It makes sense to tell the reader where the value comes from so that he or she can assess how solid your representation is in this respect. It is more likely than not that sooner or later you will have to provide backup for all the material, meaning important and impactful representations in your financial statement. To begin with, your lawyer may want to have all that backup to ensure that your entries are accurate. And it's not about second guessing you. It's about doing their job for you and making sure that you are not later caught on any inaccuracies. But more than that, the other side will want to test the accuracy of your entries and you will want to test theirs. If you are in court, sooner or later, the accuracy will also be considered. My third takeaway for you is that the more you front load this task, the less scrambling you will have to do as time progresses. 
compile the backup documents as you are preparing your financial statement in the first place. And this is particularly important for the assets and liabilities portion of your financial statement. If you say the balance of the mortgage on the separation date was $360,122, then you should have a statement from the lender showing that balance on that day. In my office, we generally prepare a financial statement brief at the same time as we work on the financial statement with our client. In the last episode, you heard about my intrepid law clerk, Carolyn Pearson, and she's the one who compiles the financial statement brief with our client, in addition to working with them on their financial statement. It essentially includes backup documents for the most important and relevant entries in the financial statement listed in an index and then separated by tabs. We often deliver the brief to the other side with the financial statement. You will be saving yourself major headaches and a lot of money if you front load this task by compiling the backup documentation while you are working on the financial statement form. And again, as I often say, your lawyer will be able to provide you with further guidance on this point. Separation very often involves disappointment, mistrust, and even anger and anxiety. People who feel these things are not usually open-minded, very willing and eager when it comes to sharing information with their separated spouse. So I sometimes hear gentle and even not so gentle objections to front-loading the way I have suggested, or even filling out a proper financial statement. I once had a gentleman tell me that he will give me and the other spouse information only on a need-to-know basis. This approach will not be helpful to your case. It will increase your legal costs, not the other way around. It will also amplify the level of your frustration over time. If you resist what you are obligated to disclose by law, a family court judge will wonder about your motives. So my overall suggestion is that you treat this part of your case, the disclosure part, which includes completing a financial statement, like a business transaction or like a mortgage application. Lots of information to be provided, Lots of questions to be answered. None of us like doing it, but it has to be done to get to the next step. To maximize chances that you will have a sane split, do not create unnecessary battles. Do not set fires simply for the sake of setting them and watching the burn. Focus your energies and your resources on meaningful negotiations on making impactful, smart legal arguments where necessary. Disclosure is a no-brainer. Family courts treat it as a non-brainer. So do the same. Hope you enjoyed the series. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, 
separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.